Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, it is my great pleasure to welcome Scott Cunningham to the show. Welcome, Scott. Thanks, Jeremy. Great to be here. Scott is the Senior Director of Global Channels at Own Backup. They are a leading Salesforce backup and recovery provider. As usual, we're not going to talk companies as much as we're going to talk sales. And in particular, I'm super excited because we haven't had enough guests on to talk about indirect channels and what it takes to sell and maintain those channels. So I'm, I'm uh, I'm going to learn as much as I think our listeners are going to learn today. Uh, Scott, before we get into the the meat of that, love to just ask you a question to get to know you. Curious, what's uh, one of your, your favorite books or sales books of all time? Yeah, so my, my go-to sales book is Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. It's brilliant. You know, it takes the mind and goes into the details of hostage negotiation and applies it to business, right? We're used to splitting the difference, but in hostage negotiation, you can't say, you have two hostages, just kill one, let the other one out, and we're good to go. There's some really great lessons learned that I've learned in that book. Yeah, definitely a very popular book amongst guests. Did you Had you had any exposure to negotiation and negotiation classes in theory before you, you read that book? Yeah, so my first my first job in college was I was selling credit repair services on the phone and you know it was direct to consumer. You know, not the same type of negotiations that you're having in a, a B2B type of sale, but a, a lot of emotion for one thing when you're talking about people's credit and their dreams and building this vision of where they want to go. I sometimes hear those advertisements on the radio and I'm I have some degree of skepticism. What's, what's your take now, having been many years past doing that and that being a college job? What, what do you think of those businesses? Ultimately, they're doing something you can do on your own. But you know, if you're willing to pay for it, there can be some value there. But at the same time, there's, there's quite a few sort of scams in that industry. So I'd be very careful. I'd like to like build up a little bit to how you actually got into, into channel sales. Because you know, as you just mentioned, you do have a, a bona fide sales background, even selling direct to consumer over the telephone. Give us a little background into how somebody who was a philosophy major found their way into, into running channel sales at a tech company. I'll keep it short. But in reality, I, I didn't graduate from college. So I dropped out of school. I started a company that was focused around ed tech and, and education consulting. And after a few years had had an exit, you know, when I was pretty young, I was, you know, 20 or something like that. And from there, I went into more traditional tech at a B2C consumer financial startup and led sales and partnerships and cut my teeth fundraising, like literally Googling, like, what is a term sheet, you know, type of things. And shortly after that, I started investing in the startup ecosystem here in Utah. I invested in the seed round of a company called Simplis, which is a consulting group that was just acquired last year by Infosys. I joined them for a few years leading channels and partnerships. And that was my entry into the Salesforce ecosystem. Oh, wow. Had you had any prior exposure to 
channels and alliances before joining that company? No, I mean, I've always been really partnership focused and, you know, building your own company, you have to be able to work with so many different stakeholders. And those skills definitely translated well as I started working in in tech, you know, trying to do things that our biggest competitors couldn't do through partnerships. It wasn't a traditional formal route of alliances or channels, but maybe some natural God-given ability, not much, but a, a lot of learning, hard work and failures along the way. Most of our listeners are B2B sales professionals, B2B sales leaders who are selling in direct businesses, right? They're selling their solutions directly to whatever it is, CROs, CMOs, COOs, chief human resources officers, you name it, um, and don't necessarily have a ton of exposure to kind of what it means to, to sell through indirect channels. Can you break down a little bit? Like how would you segment the indirect channel world? You know, I would look at it more as just channels in general. You know, obviously there's direct and indirect, but really what it comes down to is within an organization like Own Backup or any organization, the alliances team and the channel team were focused on driving top of the funnel net new pipeline. We want to find partners to bring us into new business. That's one goal. We want to find partners that can influence existing business. You know, whether that's accelerating the deal or giving us intel, people, things we didn't know about a prospect. And, you know, the last thing that I would say is the third thing would be really working to find partners that can help us accelerate our deals. You know, working through traditional resellers like a Kerasoft or SHI, you know, their contracting mechanisms so that companies can buy faster. Well, yeah, let's break each one of those down and we'll get back into that third one uh, as well. So the, the first one was finding partners to help bring you into deals. In my mind, occasionally an existing company that's a, a partner, you know, supplier to us will come in and they'll introduce a third party. This actually happened to me recently. I'm not going to mention names because I had a bad outcome, but it's one of my favorite companies to work with. I've worked with them for, you know, over a decade They've even changed names in the times uh, that time I worked with them. You know, they use me as an evangelist. They'll put me on prospect calls to I'm one of their customer references, and they brought in this third party that they were working with to pitch something that that was related. And it turned out in that case to not be a great fit. I actually thought less of the company in the process of doing that, but I was definitely wondering what was in it for the the company with which I already had a relationship. Is like that the kind of partner that obviously not that outcome? Is it like independent software vendors who, who fit in that category or who fits into that category? Yeah, definitely. You know, for us, it's it's a lot of independent software vendors, right? There's different reasons they partner with us. Sometimes it's because, you know, we have an industry leading solution and a good name, right? And so they want to associate themselves with that brand. Other times, you know, again, I'm not gonna I won't mention specific names, but you know, we, we partner with a lot of DevOps tools and some of them have these DevOps capabilities that they've built from a software side. And on top of that, they've also built their own backup and recovery tool, right? And so for the, the main software vendor for DevOps that has not built their own backup and recovery tool, when they're in deals competitively, they're seen as deficient. So we've partnered with them and are able to present like a mutual best-in-class message so they can win more deals. And then obviously, 
we're getting into a lot more deals as well. In those instances, does your salesperson have to get involved or is there some kind of pass through that it's almost white labeled access to own backup? We typically do more of what we refer to as a co-selling motion. So, you know, they'll raise their hand and say, we have this customer that, you know, we're in a competitive deal with, and then we will align our teams. So our account team will talk to their account team, share Intel. Maybe they're even already a customer of ours. Maybe it's just one of their orgs though, right? And then, you know, we will co-sell together. So we will be on joint discovery calls, demos, presentations. We still run the sales cycle on our side and it's typically still on our paper, you know, but there's, there's times where we'll run the process and it will all be sold on our partner's paper. Is it expected that your sales reps will cultivate those relationships or is that something you and your team cultivate and then distribute out to your sales team? It's sort of a mix of both. I mean, I think at this point, you know, like I'll manage more of the global relationship and the higher level executive alignment. I also want to be looped on everything so that I know what's happening and I can make sure our partners are getting credit when they're bringing us deals. If our teams, if we have, you know, an HLS focused rep that covers a certain region and the partner has an HLS rep that covers a certain region, you know, we definitely try to help facilitate and, and have them cultivate those relationships because it's so much more scalable. And then they might work together, I guess, over and over again when they have those successful relationships, bringing business both ways. Yeah. Yeah. You know, talking about their, you know, account planning and strategy, top 10, next 10, and then selling, selling with a partner. Because what we find is if you're selling into an account and with us, with a really close relationship with Salesforce, if Salesforce is saying you should use own backup, we're saying you should use own backup. VSI is saying you should use own backup. And maybe there's even an, an ISV involved. It's such a stronger message than most of our competitors are able to present. Got it. For folks listening, another gave you another acronym there, SI, which is systems integrator. So describe what a systems integrator is and how they differ from, a, from an independent software vendor. Yeah, so you can think of a system integrator really as a, a consulting or development group. So you know, there's global system integrators like Accenture and Deloitte, PwC, and then there's lots of incredible regional ones. I mean, I mentioned Simplest earlier, one of the groups that I, I worked with. You know, these are the groups when you buy software that are doing the implementation of the software, that are doing the, sometimes the managed services, sometimes the strategy, and helping you make sure you're building your business and adopting tools in ways that are scalable. I would assume there's all kinds of financial relationships in partnership channel alliances uh ecosystems in some cases it's 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 like trust and each company does their own thing and they to use a cliche business term it's a symbiotic relationship uh and then in other cases one party pays the other one you know a a referral fee how do you create incentives that are fruitful for both selling parties as well as for the customer it's challenging sometimes. The way that I look at it first, even before talking about that, is first really truly trying to understand the partner's business and what the partner's goals are. And also their values in some ways. You know, we we work with quite a few partners where we do have a referral relationship. You know, we work with some, I mentioned the large DevOps organization we work with where we actually don't 
have a referral relationship. We have a partner agreement executed, NDAs. We share lots of mutual investors. You know, we're very close, but we don't incentivize each other on paper anyway, you know, to refer business back and forth. You know, sometimes we'll do an incentive where you can get a gift card or whatever, something like that. So, you know, that's definitely, I think, probably the most common way is through a referral relationship um, that's official and contractual and on documented and tracked in some way. But there's, there's a lot of times where our partners, they don't want to receive referral fees because they want to, they want to maintain that, that third-party trust, right? And they can tell their customer, hey, this is who we recommend. We have 100 customers using them. We use them, but do your own diligence, right? And check out three or four vendors. As you know, on the buying side, obviously, I think it's so much more powerful, at least when the relationship is disclosed or even more powerful, I suppose, if they say, look, we, you know, we have no financial relationship. We're just recommending them because we, you know, we work with them. We trust them with our, you know, with our customers and, and so on. You know, it's interesting in, in heavily regulated industries, right? Finance, financial services in particular, those types of relationships need to be disclosed. I think even in real estate, right? Like those types of things need to be disclosed. Uh, but not so much in in uh, these kind of unregulated in unregulated industries. Well, well, we talked a bunch about these uh, systems integrators and independent software vendors, where you you know you might bring each other into deals. Let's go to the second type of goal that you might accomplish, and you you had mentioned it's influencing existing business. So c- can you explain a little bit about how that works? Yeah. So how we how our organization is tracked from a metric standpoint is those are the two key metrics that are most important to us. So the first is what we re- we call referred pipeline. So that's net new deals that are coming to us through a partner. The second is what we talk about as influence pipeline. So that's where we already have a, a sales motion in progress. And maybe they're already the customer of a partner, or maybe they're a prospect of a customer. And so influence can happen in a lot of different ways. It could be our account teams aligning and us talking about where we're at in the deal, who we're working with, um, what the processes have been. If they're already a customer of the partner, you know, they could share info like, oh, you're talking to the wrong person. You know, they say they have signing power, they don't. It's this person. Or here's here's what you need to look out for in the procurement process, right? Or legal or infosec right? They've been through it. They can share that intel. It could be though, you know, next time they're in their sales motion with the same prospect, they're saying, hey, we partner with own backup. They're a great solution. Something as simple as that, just hearing, hearing the name and that, you know, we're a trusted partner can go a long way. How does a salesperson at own backup, like tap into your team as a service to figure out whether the that sort of information and those types of relationships and insights are available? It definitely skews more towards larger deals. Quite a few of our partners, though, they do send over a lot of and refer us into a lot of SMB deals. I think more commonly, you know, we're spending time and aligning on the deals that are higher value to the business. And so through the discovery process, we're talking to them about not just their backup and recovery needs. We're talking a little more high level about what software tools do they use, right? Do they use some of our, our partners' software tools, right? What SIs are they working with? 
Um, you know, do they work with or have preferred resellers that they work with? So we're capturing that information, detailing it within Salesforce, and our team is able to view that and get notifications. You know, we could set look at a report of the top six-digit deals or the top hundred deals and see which partners have been attached to them. With some of our partners, though, we share even a lot more intel. Like with some of our partners, I have their full account list and prospect list, right? So I know if they're a customer or I know if they're targeting an account. And then I can share that out with our sales teams to see, hey, would it be helpful to connect you to the right people at this financial services partner? Got it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. It also got me thinking about you know, channel education and channel attention. You know, If you were to go to a place that didn't have a channel program, how important is setting up that kind of a channel education program and, and how would you go about setting that up? You know, the, the channel organization at own backup was, was relatively new when I joined two and a half years ago. So there was um, another incredible VP. I have to say that cause I report to him just kidding. So Mitch, Mitch Gauss is my boss. So he, he was at spring CM. Um, he's been in the Salesforce ecosystem a really long time and runs a, a team that he gives so much flexibility and trust. Like, we can try new things, we can make mistakes, we can learn from them and move and move forward. So I was the third member of our channel and alliances team at On Backup. And now we're at like, I think 14 and a couple of reps out. So if you're looking, please apply. How I think about it though is is a few ways. And this maybe is most relevant to Salesforce, but I think you know other partner ecosystems it's it's very relevant to as well. So the first thing when I talk and think about building a channel organization, it really is, to your point, it's a lot of marketing, right? It's a lot of education. And most of the time, it's education to different teams within a partner. So you're not going to talk to the sales teams the same way you talk to the solution architects, right? Or the, C- the customer success managers. You need to have your talk track in place and make sure you're talking to what they care about. When you're talking to those partners as well, you have to realize you're not the only partner talking to them. So the first takeaway I would, I would say is, is be memorable. You know, when I give a presentation, I'm not giving a boring PowerPoint presentation. You know, you're looking at memes and videos and, you know, infographics. And I, I don't want to be boring. I want you to be engaged and I want you to remember me, right? And remember our solution. The second, the second thing I would say is making sure that you're actually providing value. You know, as an example, and you know, sometimes our team will come to us and say, hey, I want to talk to this company because they use Salesforce. And our team's response is, that's not enough. If you got the CTO of this company on the phone, are you going to say, hey, I want to talk to you because you use Salesforce? I would hope not. It's the same to our, to our partners. You know, the sales reps don't have a lot of time. So what value are we providing them? You know, obviously with Salesforce, there's a percent of net revenue that goes towards quota credit for their number, but every partner has that. So what else is it? Our talk track is around, we can help de-risk and accelerate your deals. If your customer loses data, I bet your service cloud upsell of a thousand users is going to be delayed or not happen. We can de-risk that. We can accelerate it. Understanding how they're compensated. You can't always just give gift cards to incentivize 
team members, but there's, there's lots of other non-monetary things you can do. You know, get them on a podcast, help them build their brand. You know, what do they care about? Or, you know, maybe, maybe it's something like, you know, if they refer us into this certain customer, our CEO will write them a LinkedIn recommendation, you know, like things that are non-tangible or non-monetary can still be extremely valuable. And I think from a channel and alliances side are, are very underutilized. The third thing I would say, this is becoming more popular, but I hope is becoming more real with organizations is I'm huge on the giving back side of things. I think if you do it in a way that is truly natural and real, you can do it in a way that increases and strengthens your partnership and drives your business goals as well. I did want to make sure that we we covered the the sort of third third goal. So uh, you know, work to find partners that can help you accelerate on your transactional business. So can, can you give us a couple of examples of that? Yeah. So I was specifically talking about that when it comes to traditional reseller partners. So you know, a reseller or a contracting vehicle is sometimes they're referred to like SHI or Kerasoft. So these are organizations that instead of having to go to own backup and DocuSign and SalesLoft and Salesforce and sign, you know, four different agreements and go through four different procurement and infosec processes, you can go to one place. You can go to Kerasoft and sign on one piece of paper and go through one procurement process and do it all. So much more efficient. I also appreciated the examples that you gave around where where it makes sense for people to work together. And it, it, I love this idea of it's it's a complementary solution that might de-risk a deal or fill in a gap that someone might have competitively. The the ones that I find much more awkward is like just intro that is purely financially motivated. But I, I like this complementary partnership thing. I think it's a it seems like it's the 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 you know much more fruitful. Since we have a few minutes left, I just as I was browsing your LinkedIn profile, I noticed you've got a bunch of really interesting and important philanthropic work that you do. Can can you talk a little bit about, you know, where where you're focused right now on giving back? Giving back is important to me and it's a longer conversation, but it's years ago, I mean, as I started my career, I did not give back and I was very selfish, very arrogant. You know, I made a lot of mistakes that I hopefully have learned from and, you know, still continue to make them, but being in a position now where I can give back and I can make an impact is extremely important to me. I have the pleasure of doing a lot of work alongside a Nobel Peace Prize winner, Kailash Satyarthi, based in New Delhi, and is working to end child trafficking. You know, since he started his work, I believe probably 20 years ago, you know, he's rescued almost 90,000 children from slavery. Being able to bring and sort of bridge the gap and support him, not only financially, but you know, through partnerships, you know, bringing in technology companies and organizations that have access to data and people that are willing to serve and obviously philanthropy dollars is something that, that I'm very passionate about. For people who do want to get involved, what's the best way for them to, to get involved? It's a great question and something everyone always asks. And it's different for everyone. I wish there was a magic bullet. But what I would say is, you know, look internally. What makes you happy? And what can you give to others? And then find an organization that supports that and gives you a platform or opportunity to engage and give back. If there's not one, 
start it yourself. You don't have to change the world to make an impact. Being a good husband or father or community member or neighbor, there's so many different ways we can give back and we desperately need that in the world today. Scott, thank you so much for being on today. It was such a pleasure to learn about channels with you and um, to be inspired by some of the philanthropy that you're also involved with. Thanks for being on. Thanks, Jeremy. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast. 